Politics, Politics, and Life Sciences Radio, also known as PLS Radio, is a show about the interplay of life sciences and politics. PLS Radio is hosted by Dean L. Finelli, Ph.D., an intellectual property attorney in Washington, D.C., whose practice focuses on issues connected to the life sciences industry. PLS explores cutting-edge topics involving the biotech and pharma ecosystems, political and governmental policy issues affecting the biotech and pharma industries, and much more. PLS guests include scientists, business, medical professionals, media personalities, newsmakers, and political leaders. Politics and Life Sciences Radio is your place for hot topic discussions and real news in the life sciences industry. Now, it's time for Politics and Life Sciences Radio with your host, Dr. Dean L. Finelli. Today, this is Dean Finelli of Politics and Life Science Radio. Thank you for joining us today, where we talk about all the issues in the life science industry and the politics that affect it. I'm very happy today to have a returning guest, Mr. Todd Furness. Todd joined us in the past, so we're really fortunate to get him back again. Uh, he's the author of the 60% Solution Rethinking Healthcare, and is really uh, just an expert and insider on issues related to the healthcare industry. So excited to talk to him in a few minutes. Uh, before we bring on uh, Mr. Furness, let's see what's going on in the life science industry. The uh, Delta variant is certainly uh, really starting to concern a lot of people in the health industry. Uh, you know, we hear a lot of this politicization of the virus, of masks, and, you know, how people should react. But certainly, you know, taking out the politics, it does seem. Uh, we also are seeing cases in children uh, increase. Uh, there's been some debate on the levels, and you know, we recently saw in Florida where they walked back, the CDC walked back some of the uh, numbers of cases. Uh, it was alleged that they had uh, overcounted the cases. But nonetheless, regardless of how many and how high the cases are, they are rising, uh, as I mentioned, especially in these areas. Uh, in the South that where vaccination numbers are a little lower. But the good news is uh, it seems as if vaccinations are increasing. This does seem to be incentivizing people to go out and get vaccinated. Um, you know, we've seen so much, as I mentioned, the politicization, people wearing masks, whether you want to wear a mask. We all hate wearing masks. But again, this is at this point with this Delta variant circulating, that's really uh, one of the strongest defenses we have. Um, when we look at kids, kids will be going back to school. Some kids are already back in school. We are seeing uh, certain kids that were back in the South uh, in specific schools, not generally, uh, seeing class classes being moved to online uh, where there's potential outbreaks in schools. So that begs the question, when will this vaccine be available for children under the age of 12. Uh, right now, we know that the Pfizer vaccine is available uh, for 12-year-olds and up. Uh, Moderna is available for 16-year-olds and up. But there's no vaccine really available at this point authorized in the U.S. Uh, for children under 12. They are, uh, these companies, Pfizer and Moderna, are doing tests in children. The FDA has just asked them to expand out 
the number of children uh, ages 5 to 11 that are in these trials. Uh, as you may recall, the mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and vaccine did show some mild uh, side effects, uh, excuse me, some side effects in a small amount of people, uh, myocarditis, pericarditis uh, were the issues. Uh, so that was concerning. Uh, but again, this was in a small percentage of people. So the FDA asked these companies to expand out their trials just to identify any of these side effects uh, before they're authorized. Because certainly uh, we know that these vaccines are very safe, but they're not 100% safe. They're not 100% effective. So it is important uh, to get a lot of these answers, uh, questions answered if possible. Uh, the FDA is also authorized booster shots in immunocompromised individuals. These are individuals that either have had a, a solid organ transplant or undergoing chemotherapy or just uh, in a similar situation where their immune system is not providing that robust enough uh, immunity. Uh, so in view of Delta, the FDA yesterday has uh, said that it would authorize booster shots in immunocompromised Americans. The CDC is meeting today and uh, likely they will authorize that, approve authorization of that. So we should see uh, booster shots available for immunocompromised people. And uh, Dr. Fauci, who's been leading the effort on this, has alluded that it's just a matter of time uh, before we see booster shots expanded uh, to other individuals who are already vaccinated. Uh, as the longer this takes to get under control, uh, the the immunity effects will tend to wane after a period of time. So similar to uh, tetanus or flu, where we get that booster shot, uh, we're definitely going to be in a situation, it looks like at this point, where people will need a booster shot. Uh, I'd like to bring on our guest at this point, uh, Dr. Todd Furness. Uh, Todd is the author of a book called The 60% Solution, Rethinking Healthcare, uh, he's an industry insider and really offers clear and practical solutions to these complex healthcare issues. You know, when we think about healthcare, whether it's going to the hospital, going to the doctor, or going to the drugstore to pick up our prescriptions, it's really this. Most people just take it for granted. We get our insurance from our our job, and you know, we go there, we present our card, and someone pays for something. But to be honest. You know, most of us don't understand really how it works, so it's great to have Todd uh, to explain this to us. Todd, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. And just to be clear, I'm a doctor in the sense that I'm a jurist doctor, not a medical doctor, but uh, thanks for the intro. Oh, my pleasure. Sorry about that, but definitely an expert in the healthcare industry, regardless of the title. So really lucky to have you today. So the first question I wanted to ask you is when we look about, when we look at the healthcare industry overall, and we've heard a lot of, you know, problems and issues, especially in the last couple of days, you know, with this $3.5 trillion uh, bill that's in the works uh, and relating to healthcare. We've heard President Biden say, you know, about one in four Americans really don't take or follow their prescriptions because they just can't afford it. What are some of the, you know, what's the the, the major issue here? Now, first of all, I think the healthcare in the U.S. is probably, you know, in my opinion, the best in the world. But why is it so confusing and why is it so expensive? And, and what are some of these issues that are really causing the U.S. healthcare industry to just uh, leave these individuals out? 
Well, that's a an, an important and a, a very, very correct and logical and critical question to ask. The central issue is, in my view, that we have completely perverted the idea of insurance. And so what's happened is we started back in 1944 with under FDR when he saw that we were going to have a labor crisis, a labor shortage, if you will, because of the Second World War. And he was right. In 1945, unemployment was 1.3%. And more importantly, we had not, not only did we have full employment, meaning everybody was participating in the labor force and everybody was working almost, but in addition to that, the labor force was construed as anybody over 10 years old. So what the president did at the time is he said, hey, I'm not going to let you compete on wages, so I'm going to implement a wage cap, but I am going to let you compete with benefits. So at the time, about 10% of Americans had health insurance, and what he did was say, I'm going to allow the insurance cost to be a business expense, but I'm not going to tax the recipients on the benefit as compensation. So it's deducted as a business expense, but not uh, taxed as revenue or as compensation to the recipient. That pro- that uh, law and that structure has been in place uninterrupted since that time, since 1944. And since that time, we've gone from roughly uh, 10% of Americans uh, of working age to having insurance to now about 90%. And when you get more, in, when you don't have privy of, con- privy of contract, uh, a concept I know you, you know very, very well as a lawyer, what happens is you you really mess up the entire cost structure. So when you go to the doctor, first of all, increasingly, you don't even know who the doctor works for. Uh, the uh, United Insurance now employs over 50,000 physicians. So when you go to a doctor, they actually could be employed by United, even though it says a practice name uh, on the top. Uh, the second thing is, is that 53% of doctors are employed by hospital systems. So what both are trying to do is they're trying to control the referral network. So what happens is now you have all these protocols, what I call commercial regulations in my book, uh, that are layered on top of governmental regulations. So now when you go to the doctor, you got you don't know who is who you're really seeing in terms of the entity, but then what you what you should be aware of is that that individual practicing medicine has to comply not only with governmental regulations in the form of being licensed, in the form of complying with state, local, and federal laws, but also has to comply with commercial regulations, meaning he or she has to do things in accordance with the rules of the insurance company that's theoretically paying them. And then in addition to that, if you run the, you run the risk of not entering the right codes, which means you can get in trouble and be either fined by your organization, fine, uh, subject to civil liability, or in some instances, criminal liability. So the risk profile is very high, and the cost structure around protecting against that risk is very high. And then what, so what we're doing is we're saying we're moving into this model, which was originally designed as a, as a last stop risk. Uh, avoidance or risk mitigation, and now we've moved that to the forefront. What really we should be doing is more often than not paying cash for things and having that relationship directly without having all these intermediaries and using insurance as a stopgap measure the way it was originally intended. So where do we, how do we get back to that? I mean, it seems like this has been embedded in our system, as you mentioned, for over 70 years, and you you offer some potential you know, ways to sort of correct this, but 
it just seems we keep throwing money at this, but we don't correct the issue. Is is this an issue that's just so ingrained in, and been around so long the same way that it's just uncorrectable? Oh, absolutely not. And, uh, you know, again, I write about this extensively in the book, and I'll give you a, a quick little example. Um, I had a friend of mine had re- who read my book, and she said, Todd, I'm so thankful for what you, the tools you gave me. And I said, what do you mean? So, well, I, I, my deductible is $3,000. I needed an MRI. The MRI was going to be $3,200 and then $800 for the radiologist to read the MRI and give me a report. So the total cost of the insurance company was going to be $4,000, of which I had to pay $3,000 as my deductible. They were going to have to pay $1,000. I said, yeah. And she said, well, because I read your book, I said, hey, what's the cash price if I do this? The answer for the cash price, $562. So instead of ever hitting her deductible, she has over $2,400 left on her deductible. Uh, if it was applied, but she saved herself a bunch of money. She saved herself, not anybody else. She saved herself $2,600. And so that's an example. We ought to be using HSAs, health savings accounts, which are tax protected money that you put into an account that's yours forever. And anything you don't use can roll into the future, uh, into perpetuity. And it's not taxed when you put it in there. And it's not, and it does reduce your tax obligation on that, um, that money. Uh, And it is not taxed when you spend it. So if we use HSAs and there are other tools available like flexible spending accounts and the like, use HSAs and become more consumers, then what happens is you can actually raise your deductible because you've got it covered by the cash that's in the HSA if you need to use it. And you're in a much different position all of a sudden. Instead of paying a premium of $3,000 a month, you might be paying a premium of $500 a month. So are you are you saying that if I go in and get an MRI or any type of uh, you know, procedure, I could ask ahead of time, can I pay cash as opposed to using my insurance? Absolutely, unequivocally, yes. And what most people don't realize is that every service provider has at least 11, not making this up, at least 11 prices for the same service. There's a cash price. There's a Medicaid price. There's a Medicare price. And then there are prices for each of what we call the BUCAs, Blue Cross, United, Cigna, and Aetna, for in-network, and then another four prices for out-of-network. So at least 11 prices for every single service offering. And all you have to do is ask. And do do doctors or any of these technicians or administrators at these facilities have any obligation to say, hey, if you pay this in cash, it's this price, or they just leave people? I mean, because whenever you go into, you know, whether you're getting an MRI or any type of procedure, the first thing they ask you is, let me see your your insurance card and your driver's license, and they don't even mention anything else. Is, Is there no obligation or duty on the part of administrators at these facilities to advise people that, you know, they have options, they could pay in cash, and it could save them money? The prior administration implemented a law effective January 1 called the Pricing Transparency Act that requires requires all hospitals and service providers post all of their prices online in machine-readable format. And so not only do they have the the obligation to tell you what the price is that it is that you're going to be charged, but they also have the legal obligation to post it online. Now, I will tell you, compliance is very low for the online posting. It's about 5% right now. And what's really, really tragic is 
a lot of systems are actually obfuscating their data. They're putting stuff in the data so it's not machine readable. But there are services out there, like there's a great service out of uh, Pennsylvania uh, called Pratter that uh, has all of these prices. There's another one uh, run by a guy named Leon Wisniewski in uh, Pittsburgh, I mean, in, uh, in Philadelphia. And each of these guys have, uh, and there are others out there as well, have developed a, a comprehensive pricing list that's available to employers and to employees alike. That's it's really amazing. I just think, you know, most people have probably have no idea about this information and about, you know, their rights when it comes to healthcare. Um when you, but if you think about when, it, we've had 70 years of grooming to say that the insurance company is going to pay for it and it's not my obligation. So you just become anesthetized to the idea that there's actually it's, this is actually a marketplace. And so most people actually never hit their deductible when you think about it. That's really remarkable. So there's a lot of opportunity here for cost reduction. And the problem is, is it has to be done by the consumers because none of the companies have a vested interest in reducing the price of healthcare. Incredible. Another question I wanted to ask you, getting more to the prescription drugs, because we keep seeing, you know, certainly the uh, Hatch-Waxman Act and the uh, generic drugs have definitely brought the cost of drugs down in the U.S., but Nonetheless, we keep seeing generic drugs that cost pennies on the dollar to be manufactured being sold for hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. Is there, is there any way to kind of prevent that? Or are there any laws that basically say, I know there's no price caps, but basically would preclude pharmaceutical companies from arbitrarily just jacking up prices just for profit? Well, there's always a market. And so the question is, how do you find the market itself? So GoodRx, for example, is an online service that tells you where the cheapest place to buy the drugs are, whether it's generic or prescription. Uh, the business models really relate to returns on capital. So let's imagine I invest in the development of a drug. I'm in order to make that investment, I've got to first just look at what the business plan is. What do I anticipate as revenues from profits uh, are derived from that sale, the sale of those drugs? And when am I? How soon will I collect those revenues? And how soon will I collect those profits in order to make a return on investment that's in keeping with my shareholder requirements? And unless you're a public benefit corporation, as you know, uh, profitability is has primacy for shareholders, which means that if you can actually bring a, a shareholder suit against the company if the company's board isn't prioritizing profit above everything else. So public benefit corporations are saying, hey, wait a minute, we also have a, uh, a social gain that we're seeking. And so profit's not, pro not uh, primate, primus, uh, it's not primary. So there are companies out there that are differently structured, but as a general rule, most companies and especially public traded companies are all ha have a profit motive. Now, so the next question that's just like logically that come to mind is say, well, Todd, tell me about this. Um, how do you, you know, what are the market things that you see? What market movements are you seeing? I think the biggest thing and the biggest seismic shift in the, uh, in the pharmaceutical space, in my view, is Amazon entering the marketplace. Now, you, they have a, an online pharmacy. You can get it in pretty much every state. And what they'll tell you is, here's the price if you go through your insurance. Here's the price for the generic. And here's the price that we're going to charge you if you don't go, if it's a cash pay without insurance. And 
a lot of times it's just less aggravation to simply buy the drug because it's either cheaper or only pennies more expensive uh, to go directly without even bothering your insurance company. So there are market opportunities out there. You just got to look for them a little bit. Talking with Todd Furness on Politics and Life Science Radio. Todd, thank you so much for joining us today. Todd is the author of The 60% Solution, Rethinking Healthcare. Uh, so many really complex issues that people take for granted. And as Todd mentioned, we've been ingrained to kind of think the same way over the last 70 years or so. I highly recommend reading Todd's book, The 60% Solution, Rethinking Healthcare. It provides a tremendous amount of information on the healthcare industry as well as uh, your rights uh, relating to healthcare. Todd, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I really appreciate the work you're doing in this space. This podcast is really important, and uh, your law firm is one of the most important in the in the industry. So, thank you so much for the work you're doing. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, and thank you everyone for joining us today. And thank you for Todd Furness again for joining us with all that valuable information. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Politics and Life Sciences Radio with Dr. Dean L. Finelli. For more information, check us out at facebook.com slash politics and life sciences.